There we go. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, and you'll notice that the Scripture reference looks maybe a little odd this morning, and that is because Jesus gives a parable, and then he gives other parables, and then he goes back and explains the first one. So what we're going to look at this morning is the first parable, the parable of the weeds, and then jump to his explanation of that, and then next week we're going to look at the in-between parables. So we're not editing Scripture out. We will get to those verses. So once you're there, uh, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's Word, Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and then 36 to 43. And these are the words of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. And then moving ahead, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And you may be seated. So as we've been working through Jesus' parables, and Jesus actually does make a somewhat veiled reference to Psalm 78 in this passage, but we've seen Jesus' ministry transition from straightforward, kind of straight up, easy to understand preaching, He shifts to parables. And remember, this shift to parables is not just to make memorable illustrations. Those of us who have spiritual ears can see that. But part of the reason of the parables of Jesus is to make sure that the blind stay blind. That's his intention. That's what he desires to do. So God's word is doing its work in the telling of parables. The blind are getting hardened and the regenerate are getting softer. They're learning. But in either case, the parables are doing exactly what they are intended to do. These are not mere uh, illustrations. These parables are doing something. They're prophetic statements. Uh, And they're often prophetic statements about the current and the future state of affairs. And they sometimes rework Old Testament imagery. And we saw in 10 to 17 that parables make the truth more memorable for those of us who are listening with spiritual ears, and it creates more confusion in the hardened and in the ungodly who are not listening with spiritual ears. So the parables are working. Last week, Jesus told a parable of the sower and four types of soil, and this week he tells the parable of the weeds. Sometimes this is known as the parable of the wheat and tares, uh, or just the weeds, 
sometimes you may have heard uh, of this weed being referred to as uh, Darnell, and that's the weed that it in fact is. So if I alternate between weeds, Darnell, and tares this morning, I mean the same thing in all three cases. Maybe the language sounds more familiar to some of those than, than to others. So we're going to look at this parable today, another farming image, another agricultural image. He first gives the parable, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said, Then go do what you... Uh, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this is a farming picture, and Jesus is telling what the kingdom of God is like. And you'll notice there's several themes in the book of Matthew. One is certainly, uh, uh, because Matthew is a Jewish man, writing to a Jewish audience, a very intentional bridging between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call typology. That's a major theme in the book of Matthew. Another significant theme that, if you listen closely, has almost vanished from evangelical preaching is the theme of the kingdom. Okay? Jesus talks about the kingdom lots. And we have to have a category for what that means. What does the kingdom mean? And Jesus tells us what the kingdom is like in parables, including this one. He tells his audience what the kingdom of heaven is like, and, and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable terms. That's not two different things. Uh, but again, Matthew's sensitivity to his Jewish audience means he'll say the kingdom of heaven, so he doesn't offend the Jewish people by saying God's name, but it's the same thing. And what we see here is that the enemy does not waste opportunities. And so when the master's servants are asleep, that is when he comes and does his work. And we can almost make immediate application of that, both in our church and for ourselves. When God's people are sleeping, bad things happen. One of the duties of God's shepherds in the church is to be alert and watchful, to be aware of the danger and the laziness and the indifference that threatens from all sides. Okay? Sleeping, being asleep, uh, being lazy, being indifferent, being complacent means we are giving opportunity for the devil to sow rotten fruit. And when the shepherds themselves become complacent and indifferent, this is a deadly cancer and a deadly rot that quickly spreads through the entire body. Indifferent leaders are a curse to their people. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are always looking for opportunities to capitalize when we are asleep. And while this is true for the servants, uh, but it's also true in everyone's individual life. If you are indifferent, if you're not finding time to read your Bible, if you're not finding time to pray, you are spiritually indifferent. And that is a wonderful opportunity for the enemy to go to work. So we cannot be indifferent as a church or as individual people. And the tactic that Jesus is describing here of mixing seed is not just a hypothetical. This was actually a tactic that was used at the time. And some would mix weed seeds in with the good seed of their enemies. Uh, and the weed in question here, darnel, or sometimes called tares, is what's called a mimic weed. The seed looks very similar to wheat seed. It's hard to tell apart. And sometimes this weed is actually called false wheat. 
Uh, and those of us who farm, maybe it'd be something a bit like wild oats, right? It's, it, it looks a bit like oats. It's hard to distinguish, uh, but by harvest time, you can clearly tell the difference. Uh, this is a false kind of wheat. They look similar at the start, but as maturity happens, they differentiate themselves. Once it becomes evident to the servants, to these workers on the farm, that an enemy has been at work, the servants become quite zealous and they get eager to go into action. And now it's okay. It's always like Peter, right? He's, Peter's asleep. He's doing the wrong things almost invariably. And then something spurs him on and then he overreacts and wants to get too busy doing things. And Jesus is just saying, no, no, just relax, okay? It's not the right time yet. And the concern that Jesus expresses why we don't get too aggressive too quick is because it's going to interrupt the wheat harvest. If you're too zealous to take these weeds out too early, that's not at the right time, you're going to disrupt the good crop. And when we think about discernment, again, in this church or in our personal lives, discernment is quite easy when we are dealing with obvious falsehood. When you're dealing with obvious falsehood, it's very easy to say so-and-so is a false teacher, this is a false ministry, it's quite easy. Where discernment is most put to the test isn't the difference between good and evil, it's between good and almost good, okay? Orthodox or almost orthodox. That's where discernment is truly put to the test, okay? Because the deadliest errors are those which sound good. They sound close, okay? They, and that's exactly what we have here. It looks close, but it's not the real thing. And so discernment is being called for here. In this prophetic statement, Jesus is almost certainly making reference to the fact that the shepherds of Israel have been asleep. Remember, these parables are all part of an escalating conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The leadership offered by the Sadducees, who were the liberals of their day, and the Pharisees, who were the fundamentalists of those days, looked close enough to the Torah that the people just said, well, I guess this is as good as it gets, this is just what it is, and they fall asleep. And in our own time, we are alive at the end of a good century or more where many Christians have taken a lowest common denominator approach to Christianity, right? Name any compromised seminary or, or Bible college or church. It started off with an actual identity, okay? Uh, but the, this lowest common denominator approach just always means you're just always giving away what's the bare minimum, what's the bare minimum, what's the bare minimum, and soon... Compromises get made in very unhealthy areas. Okay? And so it's a very poor and a very sick question. If people's approach to the Christian life is what is the bare minimum that I need to know or that I need to do to go to heaven when I die, that is a cancerous approach to the Christian life. Okay? The Bible never encourages us to what is the bare minimum I can do and still just barely squeak in. That's not a Christian attitude. But if we really think about it, to get into the picture of the world, think actually, relatively speaking, how little emphasis is in the Bible about your soul going to heaven when you die versus the kingdom of God, versus sanctification, okay? Bearing fruit, the new heavens, the redemption in Christ, okay? The Bible does speak, of course, about personal redemption, but there's very little emphasis on dying and going to heaven versus being fruitful in the kingdom of God and this remarriage of the new Jerusalem with this corrupt creation, okay? Christians are always encouraged to be fruitful, to do things, 
Okay? Not just to have some kind of mystic knowledge in your head, but to get out and do things to make Christ known in an actual creation. And again, for those of us, especially those of us that have grown up around Christianity, we have the advantage of already having heard this parable and its interpretation probably many times in your life. So before we start reading this parable, we know what the explanation is. The disciples did not know what the explanation was this first time through. But they demonstrate a humble and teachable attitude. So instead of just grunting and going off in confusion saying, well, who can understand this? They show their eagerness to learn and to obey, and so they follow Jesus into the house to ask him some follow-up questions. Afterward, what does this mean? And their example is a good one. Their example demonstrates that, f- that fruitfulness must be grounded in a correct understanding of the teaching of Scripture, the theology of Jesus himself. And they want to understand that so that they can obey King Jesus. And to get to, for us to just get busy working on our behavior while neglecting doctrine, or to never apply correct doctrine, is to make the exact same errors as the Jewish leaders in those days. And here the the disciples are demonstrating that it is indeed head first, and then hands. It's root and then fruit, and we've seen that lots. The fire must have fuel before it starts to give light and warmth. And I'll say this again, why Why is it so important to feed our minds with the theology of Scripture? It's because your heart is more important than your brain. That's why you must fill your brain. Because this is the fuel tank, okay? Blazing hearts don't run on empty heads, okay? There has to be fuel for that heart to keep burning and keep doing. That's why we must understand what Scripture is teaching in our minds so that there's fuel for the fire in our heart. And Jesus never separates these things. He always connects them. One, then the other. Okay? The wood, the fuel, creates the warmth and the heat. Then when we jump to the explanation, starting in verse 36, then he says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this parable becomes very straightforward. The Son of Man, or Christ himself, is the one who has sown the seed. The field is the world, and this is where the kingdom is, is in the world, and this is a very important piece. The kingdom and the world overlap each other. The wheat seed is the sons of God, and the darnel seed is the sons of the devil. The false sower is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And so the picture becomes fairly easy to see when we see what these things mean, okay? This is God's creation, this is God's world, and so the world rightly belongs to God, and so he has every rightful claim over it, and he is exercising his authority when he plants the crop of his kingdom into his creation, okay? And the seed of God's word takes root and indeed returns an abundant harvest. Last week we saw that the seed that actually does take root in this kingdom often increases 30, 60, or even 100-fold. 
And so we have a lively, growing, and expansive sowing of God's word. However, alongside with this healthy crop, the enemy has also capitalized on his opportunities and has sown bad seed among the crop. And so here Christ Jesus himself says that the field is the world, and so this is a picture of the kingdom taking root in world history, verse 24. And again, when we think about popular notions that we maybe sometimes come assuming before we even get to the text, is that there is a common notion that has been around for a hundred or maybe a little bit longer years, that people have started to think of the kingdom of God as entirely future. It's not here in any sense. It's waiting, okay? It's waiting to get here. But that is the kingdom in its perfected form after the final judgment. But the present reality is the kingdom has already taken root. It's already here. Yes, not in its perfected form. Yes, not in its final form. But it is here. Because this kingdom exists alongside the weeds. Okay, so the kingdom doesn't have to be perfected for it to be present. Some also have the notion that the kingdom of God is confined to just inside the church. And this morning, I didn't actually pay Sean to ask the question about Anabaptism. I didn't even know it was coming. Uh, But many of us in this room have grown up in Anabaptism. And there is a heritage there for which we can be thankful. I certainly am thankful for much that I have taught, been taught. Okay? I've been taught community. I've been taught hard work. I've been taught the stories of the Bible. But one thing that is a significant weakness that I think we're seeing more and more as our society goes from being helpful to the church to being a hindrance to the church, is that that approach to the kingdom that says it's just the, just the church, it's not for out in the world, it's just the Stille im Land, it's just us here in this building, and that's the only place that the kingdom of God exists, is that it is unable to come to terms with social and cultural realities, okay? because it's built on a very radical form of kingdom theology. In the church, it's spiritual. Everything outside is just demonic and it's just going to pot and it's just going to get bad and so we don't concern ourselves with anything in the world. So in this view, the kingdom of God is seen as entirely separate from the world. It's seen as we withdraw out of a corrupt and unsavable world. The world will not be redeemed, just individual souls. And maybe surprisingly, but not really, this kind of theology produces some of the most sectarian legalists and some of the most lukewarm liberals you will ever find. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? You go see the black coverall Mennonites in Bolivia and you see the CMU crowd. Okay? How is it that a certain theology produces both spectrums? I think there is a certain logic. If the kingdom of God is not going to be successful in the world, if you think that the Bible says the kingdom is not going to have an impact on the world itself, in world history, then escaping things or becoming lukewarm or indifferent or even compromised has a certain logic to it. We're not going to get anywhere anyway, so let's just withdraw. And then depending on your preferences, you'll go this way or that way. But it's a theology of withdrawal from the world rather than advancing the kingdom in the world. And I say that as one who is deeply thankful for much of my heritage, but I see deeper and widening problems with this approach to cultural retreat. We've seen so often already in the gospel that the kingdom has already broken into human history with the 
coming of Christ. Jesus preaches that way. The kingdom is here. John preaches that way. The kingdom's at hand. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So the kingdom does come down with Jesus Christ and gets its start. So the kingdom is not merely the finished product at the end of history. And again, the reality here is that the kingdom exists with weeds alongside it. There's weeds present beside the kingdom. Okay? And we have to reckon with that. We have to allow in our thinking that a wheat crop is a wheat crop even before harvest day. Okay? All of our farmers just finished harvest, but the corn crop didn't become a corn crop once it got into the bin. It was a corn crop from the start. It's safely gathered in now, but it was a corn crop before the combine got there. And so it is with the kingdom. And I think that the, the kingdom of God in Jesus' parables, is concerned with the world. It's in the world. It's covering the world. It's taking root in the soil. And until harvest day, it is going to march on, however imperfectly, despite the fact that weeds are still present. Okay? And we have to reckon with the weeds. That's what this parable is about. And so when we sometimes talk, and these talks are getting more serious, when we sometimes think about talking about classical education or a, a, a school or, or that kind of thing, or, or just even education philosophy for children in general, the goal of Christian education is actually not to shelter kids so that they're not confronting different ideas. The thinking is, the reality is, all education is religious. The government of Manitoba schools absolutely are religious. Okay? They're teaching a secular religion. And so when we think about, can we escape this and just you know, shelter kids in a Christian school? That's not the point. The point is to get them to think like Christians. Okay? To, that they have to confront these ideas. The weeds are out there. We have to think seriously about this. We can't escape it. We can't get away from it. There's no, nowhere on the map that's so far away from sin that we won't bring it with us when we go. Okay? The weeds are a reality in this present state of affairs. And we have to deal honestly with that. Okay, so the kingdom of God is slow, it's gradual. Jesus uses these farming images, okay, patience. It's not relegated to one little corner of holiness, and it's not waiting to all come down like the 82nd airborne. It's gradual, it's slow. Jesus is saying, be patient. It's taking root, it's growing. The kingdom covers the whole field of the world. It's from corner to corner, and it's progressive, and it advances little by little, and that's what the in-between parables are concerned with here. This kingdom is victorious. Note that when the harvesters come, even though there's weeds mixed in, they're not coming to a Darnell field with some odd wheat plants. It's a wheat field with weeds mixed in. And because these parables are prophetic, they should, these images should help us gain a proper perspective. Okay? And so despite the popularity in, in a lot of Christian pop culture that evil is just going to take over the world, uh, and it's just a total wipeout towards the end, that's not what these kingdom parables are demonstrating. They're teaching advance. They're teaching progress. They're teaching slow but sure and imperfect victory. Okay? The, weed does not get, or the wheat does not get snuffed out by the weeds. It's present alongside with the weeds, but it's still a wheat crop that the farmers harvest. So we have to have room in our thinking as we think about the confusing world that we live in the glimmers of light that we see, and the darkness that is always so present. We have to have a category in our room for both to be true simultaneously. The success of the kingdom of God in the world, even before Christ returns, is true. 
But this can't morph into some kind of fantasy world where, oh, I guess, well, it's just going to be a cakewalk and, and evil's not going to exist and, and it's just going to be easy for us. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching patient, slow, steady advance, sometimes amid setback, always with weeds present. But what marks this field is not the weeds, it's the kingdom of God. Okay? The weeds are present, but they're not definitional. So Christ's picture of the present reality of the kingdom on earth does not allow us to take a Pollyanna view or a utopian view of how we can perfect ourselves because the Darnell is there at the end, at the harvest. But neither are we allowed to have a view of catastrophe and retreat. The Darnell is present. It's there. Okay? It's the exception and not the rule. And so things in our time are indeed troubled and unstable. I think it's not unfair to say that by and large... The shepherds have been fast asleep. The weeds have scattered rapidly. But the promises of Christ do hold nevertheless. And when we live in dark times, as we indeed do, we need to look through our circumstances to the biblical imagery. Okay? We don't interpret these parables in light of our experience. We have to understand our experiences in light of what Jesus himself says about the kingdom. We are a wheat crop that needs constant care. We need to be constantly tended so that we outcompete the Darnell rather than become consumed by it, right? And we talked about the parable of the empty house. We need to fill that spot. The, the best way to get rid of the weeds is to outcompete it, to fill that spot, to grow something healthy, to grow something holy. Because, after all, the judgment day is in fact coming. And we are going to be gathered in, those of us who are the sons and daughters of God, are be going to be gathered in to the safety and the permanent abundance of a barn while those who oppose Christ and his work are going to be hogtied and thrown into an everlasting fire. And so we can also make application of this parable inside the church, because the church also has weeds in it. The church should be perfect, but we're not. Okay, so it's not just the world generally, but also in the church where wheat and darnel grow side by side. And this is a difficult reality, because it means that we have to come to terms with several difficult passages that don't just need to be understood, but they also need to be obeyed. In Matthew 7, as we've been working through this gospel, we already saw the false professors who said, Lord, Lord, and how does Jesus respond? Go away. I never knew you. Church people that God never knew. Okay? Church people going to hell, going to the everlasting fire. And as we moved along in the gospel, we've also seen plenty of examples of frauds, who aren't serious about putting sin to death. And in so doing, they're demonstrating that they don't actually belong to Christ. And the parable of the sowers last week demonstrates exactly that truth. There's fakes and frauds, and the root of the matter is not in them. In Hebrews 6, we have a vivid description of people who take part in this covenant community in every physical way imaginable, but they fall away because they're not rooted in Christ. In 1 John 2, we read about people who left the church, and what does John say? Oh, they must have lost their justification, right? No, no. What does he say? Why did they leave? Because they were never part of us. They never belonged here. They were frauds from the start. And as time goes on, the wheat and the darnel are going to separate themselves more and more. You're going to see those differences in starker and starker contrast. And so we have a concept in theology called the visible church and the invisible church. And the invisible church isn't you staying at home and watching YouTube. The invisible church is those who are truly redeemed inside the visible church. The visible church, I can see everyone here. This is the visible church. And inside this church are true believers. 
the invisible church. Okay? The invisible church is a reality inside the real church. And we want that to be all the same people. But scripture teaches that there are false professors in the church. And here Jesus describes this reality as wheat and darnel. Wheat and tares, or wheat and weeds, or however you're familiar with it. They look the same at the beginning. The seed looks the same. The freshly germinated plant looks the same. Come harvest time, you can tell these are two different plants. Over time, the differences get obvious. And so just like there's a ditch on both sides of the road when we consider, well, almost anything, there is too when we think about the reality of false professors in the church. We know that there's one command that runs through the whole Old Testament or, and New Testament, and that is to protect the purity of the church. And we have to protect the church in her doctrinal purity and in her moral purity. False teachers must be confronted and removed if they don't repent. Immoral people must also be confronted and removed from the church if they don't repent. Okay? The tears do reach a certain day where it is time to get them out. The church is the bride of Christ. And so for us to take a lax attitude about the state of a church is to tell a lie about the way Christ feels about his bride. Okay? If we take a, a lax attitude, we're saying Jesus doesn't actually care about the welfare of his wife. And that's a lie. He does. He cares deeply. He loves his bride. And once we get to Matthew 18, we're going to have more instruction from Jesus that gives a roadmap for how we ought to treat discipline in the church. Okay? And so the biblical mandate is clear. One of the jobs that the church must perform is discipline. And this takes place in many different forms. Okay? We always think about, well, it's just excommunication. No, no, there's lots that happens. Do you know that worshiping together is a form of discipline? It's called formative discipline. <laughs> we're all here and we're being formed up into God. We're learning scriptures. We're being disciplined in the scriptures. Okay? That's formative discipline. Then there's also corrective discipline. If someone starts to stray, you start bringing them back. And you only use as much pressure as is needed. Okay? You don't come down with a 40-pound hammer all at once. Uh, and that's Jesus' instructions uh, in Matthew 18. And I'll give a little spoiler alert. That's the passage where it says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Okay? That's not a passage about a secret worship service that me and Howard can have on the golf course on Sunday morning. Okay? Two or three gathered in my name is in the context of church discipline. God will give wisdom to the church as she makes decisions about discipline. That's what it means that the Spirit is there when two or three are gathered in his name. But the common notion today of grace isn't so much how we apply the remedy to sin. So often what covers behind the name of grace is just an indifference. It's pretending like sin doesn't really exist. Right? Just, just love them. Just love them. Don't confront the error. Okay, don't, don't do anything uh, that could raise flags or that might create waves. Okay? But again, things must be defined by the Bible. What's biblical grace? What's biblical love? Love does not sit idly by while people shipwreck their lives. Love confronts. And even when the church must carry out the strongest possible tool that she has at her disposal, which is excommunication, the goal even then is not to just be done with someone. It's to send them out like the prodigal son that they can see the error of their ways and be restored. That's always the goal of all church discipline is for people to be restored and to come back in. And church discipline, the church is saying that to the best of her knowledge, the person in question is not a Christian. Okay? They've been 
corrected many times and they just refuse to repent. And actually, that's the only reason for which anyone should ever be formally put out of the church is a refusal to repent. Okay, any sin can be forgiven. Any sexual indiscretion can be forgiven. Any financial discretion can be forgiven. Okay, there's nothing someone can do that can't be forgiven except refuse to repent. So if a person refuses to acknowledge the lordship of Christ in that sin, that's the only reason at which they should be put out of the church. And even then we desire their return. And this is a very somber step. And the Bible lays it out pretty clearly. And I hope as a church we never ever have to do this. But if we must, then I pray that we would also trust in God's word in the hard places. Okay? We need to obey this. And church discipline is not popular today, and many churches just outrightly neglect this area altogether. And as always, the solution isn't to just do the exact opposite of what the other guys are doing, but it's to find the biblical balance. And so as always, we want to go where Scripture says we must go, and not just do the opposite of what we dislike. When the workers in this parable get excited about the problem, and ask if they should run out and quickly take care of it, Jesus' concern in verse 29 and verse 30 is to be patient. Because the damage of upsetting and uprooting the immature and undeveloped Christians in this field is greater than the damage of leaving the Darnell alone for a little bit longer. The main concern here that Jesus expresses is to not uproot underdeveloped wheat. So being overzealous in discipline may rob a young believer of their assurance. Or it may push them into a kind of morbid introspection or perfectionism that is far from healthy for their development. And further, because God is in fact in the rebirth business, what if he's in the process of turning some of that Darnell into wheat? Okay? We need to leave room for that. We need to be patient as Jesus instructs us to be as we approach these weeds. So this is a caution which guards us from being overzealous about making a perfectly pure church or a perfectly pure world. And it guards us from a biblical concern about moral and doctrinal standards turning into a kind of closed nitpicking club of perfectionists. But moving back out from the church to the world, this principle is also a principle that has given us many blessings that we enjoy in this world. And I won't do a deep dive on it. But in, if you grew up in the West, you enjoy what's called the presumption of innocence. That means a court views you as innocent until you're proven guilty. Islam is not capable of providing that. Secularism is not capable of providing that. Christianity alone is capable of providing just weights and measures. Because Christians know that these people will not escape the final judgment. Okay? So in a Christian context, it's always better to let a guilty man go free and face God at the appointed time than to hang an innocent man. Okay? So if you enjoy just weights and measures, if you enjoy uh, ready, aim, fire instead of ready, fire, aim, if you don't want to be the next one who's a victim of some bunch of campus feminists lighting their hair on fire about something because you were accused of something and you can't even defend yourself, if you want mob justice, keep moving into secularism. If you want somber justification, proper establishment of guilt on two or three witnesses, if you want that, Christianity alone is capable of providing that. Okay? And as we move from Christianity, you'll notice the mobs get hungrier and hungrier to devour who they devour. We have the answer. No one will escape the final judgment. So even if we don't get it perfect, God will judge perfectly in the end. So we can have confidence as we do that. 
we have confidence in the final judgment. At the final judgment, God and his angels will not make imperfect and provisional judgments like we must. God gets it perfect each time. So we ought not to be frustrated if we're not able to discern perfectly now. And this parable is yet another word picture that illustrates the truth that Christ has been preaching for some time now. The root and fruit relationship does have real-world consequences. In both the world and the church, we have frauds and fakers. We have people who look like the real thing for a while, but then the evidence of their life over time shows that they don't really love the Lord. They love themselves. That's who they really love. Me, myself, and I. I'm in it for me. I'm in it to build my empire. I'm in it for my reputation. I'm in it for me. And that fruit is going to look very different over time. And people who are like this, they actually like the idea of this slow rollout of discipline. Not because they care about God's standards of justice being upheld, but because the more time they buy, they think they'll get away with it. Okay? And how many times do we have, a, oh, boys will be boys, kids will be kids, haha, it's not a big deal if they're sinning. Okay? And they say that not because they care about the other guy. They say that for the same reasons that we give these fantastic eulogies at funerals. We're not doing it to honor the dead guy. The reason we talk so positively about people after they're dead is because I want to feel good about myself. I want to convince myself there's nothing to fear because we're all good people after all. All I have to do to go to heaven is die. That's why I'm eulogizing this guy. And often when we say, well, yeah, boys will be boys, just love them, just be patient, there's truth to that. But are you saying that because you want God's justice done God's way or are you saying that as a form of your own self-protection? Because you think you'll get away with it then. So we need to be worried about God's standards, God's way for God's reasons. Grace addresses sin with a kind and loving remedy. And our modern version of tolerance is quite different. It pretends like there is no sin to remedy. It pretends like all is fine and not all is fine. Jesus is Lord and sovereign and ruler, not just of the church, but of the whole world. And the kingdom in this parable covers the whole world. So there is absolutely nowhere to go where Christ does not have rule or dominion. So we must follow his blueprint everywhere, dealing with things inside the church or outside the church. We do not have permission to treat sin lightly or to turn a blind eye, but we also don't have permission to use more force than is necessary or to cave to the demands of an angry mob before the truth has been established. It's God's world, God's rules at all times. And the kingdom of God is indeed over everything. Everything, every field, every person must bend the knee eventually. Because all creation exists by God and for God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so in light of the way that Jesus teaches about the kingdom, we have no permission to push the kingdom all out to the future, only to its perfect form, as though it's not a present reality. But we also have no permission to wall it off into some secret place where it's just relegated to our personal hearts or church. The kingdom's origin is spiritual, but it takes root in physical form in the real world. And the presence of weeds doesn't mean the kingdom's not here. It just means it's not finished yet. It just means final judgment hasn't happened. It means that those of us who are in the kingdom have more work to do, more sin to conquer, more people to preach the gospel to. And this means that everything must be brought into subjection of the king. And that is the whole work of the kingdom. Your heart, yes, but also your family, your work, art, sports, economics, Every department at every university in the world needs to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And yes, even politics needs to be brought under the subjection of Jesus Christ. Our laws need to obey King Jesus. It's for everywhere. So Jesus' kingdom parables and his great commission don't leave anything untouched by the gospel. Yes, sin is present. Yes, there is setback. But the kingdom is the, of the field is in the world. And so we can say with Jonathan Edwards that the whole duty of the Christian is to make the invisible kingdom more and more visible in the real world. The heart changes, or the gospel changes the heart, the heart changes the man, the man changes his surroundings. That's how it works. And so as we close, some questions to reflect on as we think about this parable this morning. Do you see weeds as a ruling principle that can't be dealt with? Or do you see them as mere corruptions and interruptions in the field of this world over which God has planted his kingdom? Do you have the confidence of assured victory and a perfect final judgment by a judge who will get nothing wrong in the final end? Maybe we should ask ourselves what we're doing to create an atmosphere in your life or in your workplace or in your family or in this church or whatever corner of the world you're in that takes the, way, the weeds seriously but also doesn't cause you to wring your hands in despair. And this is our mission. The weeds are real and the kingdom is real. And we must deal honestly with both. But we deal with them with a settled conviction in God's victory unfolding in human history and then made perfect at the coming of the king. And so do we have confidence to play by God's rules in God's world, God's way, for his reasons? Let's consider that as we close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use pictures to show us what your kingdom is like. Lord, it's not a cakewalk. It's not easy. There's much setback. There's much that we have to reckon with. But Lord, you have promised that there will be a return on your word. The work of the kingdom, the work of fruitfulness marches on. And I pray that we would march on victoriously and happily as we plant and as we tend, as we confront the weeds, as we try to grow up in a healthy crop. Lord, I pray that you would do that in each person, in each corner that we work in, that we live in. And I pray that you would do it in this church and churches generally as the gospel goes out, as we announce your kingship to people and to nations and to towns. Lord, I pray that we would do so boldly and confidently, knowing that you are a victorious king. You will get it all right in the end. And I pray that we would have settled confidence, whatever we see in front of our eyes, to trust in your purposes and your way. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.